The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Okay, okay. press the button. And we're live. It is Tuesday, December 14th, 5.01 p.m. Eastern Time. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we no. are allowed to have the inestimable, amazing Yale Law professor, uh, Jack Balkan, here to talk about everything. I don't know. We're just going to have a nice talk about the Supreme Court Commission first. And then whole woman's health and Dobbs and the whole everything that's been coming out of that. But uh, how you doing, Jack? You has it been a while since you've been on the show? I just want to ask you, as a technical matter, are you? Um, is my picture coming through? Because on my screen, I have a. Uh, a no, you, I, I can a, see you. You're fine. All right. So as, as you can see me and hear me, we're doing fine. It's good to see you. Uh, Kate, it's great to be back on In Lieu of Fun, which, as you may or may not know, is the most famous talk show in the gallery. There, it is. Yeah, yeah. There are people on Alpha Centauri, or sentient beings on Alpha Centauri, that regard you guys as basically almost semi-divine. You they always, it's just, yeah, you're, uh, you, uh, you always say the right things. This is why we keep inviting you back. Among, among other reasons. Of course, Tori is several light years away. They actually won't get this broadcast for a while, but, but you know, eventually they will be delighted uh, so by this broadcast. Before we were, before we go to the Supreme Court um, Commission, uh, I wanted to ask you, we were talking before, uh, before we went in the green room about your, what you're working on right now. Um, and you, told me you're working on a book that is about how lawyers and scholars, legal scholars or lawyers in like courtrooms also, yeah. practitioners. Lawyers, judges, legal scholars. Those okay, folks. use legal, use history in like the pursuit of making their argument basically? In constitutional uh, argument, yeah. So it's about how lawyers uh, uh, argue about constitutional history uh, and how historians shake their heads. Uh, uh, you know, S, so uh, why S, do they shake their heads? Uh, because they, they do not think of history the way that lawyers do. Uh, this, this, this is another, uh, this is a topic for another, uh, yeah. in lieu of fun. but lawyers and historians have been, you know, going around on this for a long time now. Great. Well, we'll have to, I would love to have you back to, uh, Just, to talk about that uh, and maybe someday eventually. There's some historians what? in the audience. I'm sure they'll tell you that the way that lawyers use history is not the way that historians think you're supposed to use history. And so there are a lot of different, a lot of different interesting questions. Interesting. So, okay. Court so tell us, yeah, tell us about, well, first of all, tell us what the Presidential Supreme Court Commission was aimed to do, how many people, it was a huge panel. There were a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so that was right, it was coming, that was kind of, you had been oh. on the show to talk about it, and I think initially, right after you got appointed, and it hadn't met yet. I couldn't talk about it because you know, because you're not supposed to. But now that the report is out, the final report is out. We are free to talk about it, and several of my co-commissioners have been writing op-eds. 
in, the, in the Post and Time Magazine and other places. It's almost as if they can't resist talking about it now, now that they're free to talk about it. And they are. So um, so let me just tell you the background of it. Uh, and so uh, uh, the uh, uh, so if you think about Democrats and Republicans, Republicans aren't interested in reforming Supreme Court. Republicans like Supreme Court fine. It's doing exactly what they're supposed to, what they wanted to do. It's really the only the people interested in reforming the Democrats. And the Democrats are deeply divided over this. And they were deeply divided over this during the 2000 campaign. So Joe Biden decided what he would do is he would promise a commission, but he would also promise a commission that basically wasn't going to make any recommendations. And so he designed this commission to basically talk about the pros and cons of different reforms for the court, uh, but we were strictly enjoined not to make any recommendations. Uh, Interesting. Basically do the analysis, the arguments pro and con. The reason is very simple. Um, the, the, uh, Biden's party is, is divided on this question. They're not all together behind it. And even if they were all together on it, they, um, they would have a great deal of trouble making any reforms under the current conditions because first they have to get rid of the filibuster then they have to get uh, the moderate uh, to conservative Democrats on board for any reforms, even if they would pass the filibuster. Um, and that's a that's a lot of uh, you know of, of ifs. So Biden understood that. Also, Biden comes into the presidency. There's just been a coup. There. Yes. Uh, oh, I heard about that. Problem. Yeah. The economy is in terrible shape, uh, and there uh, there are any number of different problems. So his view was he didn't think that court reform was actually his first priority, at least this is my guess. And that's why the commission is created the way it is. Nevertheless, this commission issued a report, which I think will be very useful uh, down the road when there actually is political will to do some reforms in the Supreme Court. And even though the commission makes lots of arguments against reform, um, all the arguments for reform are still available. And when reformers get the political will together and get the votes together, then in fact, I think the, the commission report will be very useful. Um, so that's that's what those who are reformers, I'm a reformer, on the commission uh, thought. We thought, well, we'll do the best we can. And then later on, when the political will is there, people can use this. There were also people on the commission who were really in, weren't really interested in reform. Um, so uh, two of them, uh, two former federal judges, uh, Griffiths and uh, Levy, just wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in which they said, we don't see why there should be any reforms, actually. We like the courts just the way they are. Or, or we think it would be very dangerous to, to mess with them. So so you said courts just now. So was this about the entire federal court system or was this about the Supreme Court in specifics? It was primarily about the Supreme Court, but you can't really talk about the Supreme Court until right. you, unless you talk about its relationship both with the lower federal courts and with state courts. So let me okay. just give you an example. Uh, one of the chapters is about jurisdiction stripping and supermajority requirements. And um, and you can't think about jurisdiction stripping uh, or supermajority requirements until you think about what its effects would be on lower federal courts uh, and state courts. So if you if you basically say the Supreme Court can't decide certain issues, well, what about the lower courts? They'll decide them. Um, and if you say supermajority requirements, well, if there are a majority that want to do something but not a supermajority, what are lower courts supposed to do with that? So yep. it, ultimately, you had to talk about it. And there was another. Um, uh, there was another elephant in the room uh, in all of this, uh, a point that I made repeatedly, I, I make sure I made it in the public hearing, and that's the Senate. Uh, it's my view that Joe Biden should have created a commission on the reform of the U.S. Senate uh, because the U.S. Senate oh, is- In its role in, in selecting judges? 
It's it's a major. It's where, as I said in the the uh, public hearing, the Senate is where good ideas go to die. The Senate is hmm. holds up everything. Uh, the filibuster, in particular, also the the uh, um, the process by which judges are uh, the the hearings for the appointments have become a farce, um, and uh, and it's just basically a combination of real politic and brute force and uh, crazy uh, uh, theatrics. Now, the Senate is really one of the major obstacles to not only reform of the courts, but uh, most of the reforms that our democracy needs right now. But of course, the commission was not asked to make suggest uh, reforms to the Senate, although there is an appendix talking about potential reforms to the appointments process, uh, nevertheless, because many of the commissioners, myself included, felt that you, you just can't talk about reforming the courts unless you talk about the Senate. So you had been on the show like a couple, well, many moons ago um, to talk about uh, a proposal that you had kind of, that you had come up with that I thought was very kind of, uh, did you get to, can you summarize that again for everybody? And then just kind of, were you, was that something that came up? Was that one of the reforms that people were kind of neutrally weighing here? Yeah, so I have been a proponent of term limits for Supreme Court justices for, I guess, 20 years or so. Uh, I've signed various, you know, letters and things, and I've written about it in my scholarship. Um, so when the commission was formed, I was asked to be on it. I specifically asked to work on the term limits uh, chapter, which is chapter three. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we dutifully rehearsed the arguments for and arguments against term limits, and we dutifully described different models of how you would actually have term limits, one of which is is closer to the proposal I made um, some time ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about term limits. I think many people uh, saw the commission as primarily focused on questions of, of increasing the size of the court, but um, only a small number of commissioners actually worked on that. Most of us worked on different topics. Some worked on jurisdiction, uh, supermajority requirements, legislative overrides. Some worked on term limits. Some worked on uh, on increasing the size of the court, and some worked on reforming the ethics, the judicial ethics system, uh, the access to um, of the judges' oral arguments, and also what's called the shadow docket, uh, in which judges without hearings, justices decide very important matters uh, on an emergency and expedited basis, which many people have thought has actually undermined the, the quality of their decision making. So there were lots of commissioners working on lots of different topics, and the report that you see is the, is the result of the combination of different working groups working on all these different topics, and then they traded the reports with each other People made comments on the reports, and then they were redrafted until we finally got more or less a consensus on what the report should look like. Yeah, and so um, I put a, let me put this in um, the chat again so that people can take a look at it. Um, this is the final um, report uh, from all of the commissioners. Uh, there are uh, five chapters in the report, and I think that the the majority of everything kind of talks about like the the, the areas in which you're kind of are talking about proposals or chapters two through five. Is that right, Jack? That's right. And one is sort of an introduction to how we got in this situation. And it's a yeah. brief history of the of the po political and social things that led to the uh, to the call for a, a commission on reform. Um, so so yeah, this is this is an incredible kind of lineup of people that they put together um that are on the commission um i think we've talked about that on the show before it's just like 30 or 34 35 of you know just kind of brilliant uh legal minds um and people with opinions but, uh, I, I, 
I think the audience would be very interested. It, it was picked, it, or, it, you know, tied to a particular conception of what it would produce. So, for example, there were very few people that are strongly identified as activists. Yeah, I did notice that. Like, it's a very, it is kind of neutral. A lot of like kind of oh, people who are- law professors. It's mostly law professors, a couple of former federal judges, and you won't be surprised to learn the former federal judges didn't want to make any changes. Uh, they liked their jobs just the way they were. Article uh, three works for them. <laughs> a small number, a relatively small number of people associated with civil society organizations. Only one political scientist, Keith Whittington, who's a very fine yeah. scholar. And that's strange because if you wanted to redesign an institution, the people you would go to are not necessarily lawyers. They argue cases within the interstices of the existing system. You would go to a political scientist because that's what these people think about all the time, the design of political structures and you know their consequences. But there's only one political scientist. And, there, and it was also very important that there be uh, political conservatives and Republicans on the court so that it could have a kind of uh, bipartisan sheen to it. Uh, although two of the commissioners, conservative commissioners, left in the middle, uh, presumably, I don't know exactly why, but they didn't like the, the current drafts at the time. I actually think that if they had stayed on, they would have been much happier with the final product. Didn't um, um, Jack Goldsmith, was he considered one of the more conservative? Uh, um, I don't know if he was conservative, but he is an establishment conservative. He's a very fine lawyer. He's done, he's been in government. He he's was, been, yeah, but he left though. He's not on the final report. Yeah, and I think he didn't like the, the drafts that came out. Uh, my assumption is, again, I don't have, uh, I don't know exactly, sure. but they had seen their own working group and they had come to terms with what their own working group was done. But then they saw the other reports from the other working groups. And I think at that point they said, well, we just have no, you know, we don't know what's going to happen here. But again, I think that uh, since both both the opponents and the proponents of different views uh, basically kept adding things to the drafts as it went on, I think they probably would be happier with the final version than the draft version they saw. Interesting. So there had to have been some level in which people had opinions on what should or should not happen and like what should or should not go in and what should or should yeah. not be discussed. I mean, like, this is one of the, uh, the, the I mean, this is like, uh, this is kind of Evelyn Dueck's everything is content moderation kind of approach, which is like, deciding what goes into a history even or a, or a or a report like this is just as important as like what you say once it's in there um just right. the, the mere inclusion of stuff i mean there had to have been some level of kind of heated how did you even like wrangle something within working groups and then how did you wrangle that draft once it was disseminated to the rest i mean i i don't know it just strikes me as a lot of like a lot of hurting cats uh, and another thing that's really crazy is the yeah. federal advisory committee act the federal advisory committee act it, it governed how we could do our jobs and one of the crazy things about the federal advisory committee act was that it divided our work into public meetings and then into other kinds of of working groups in which we actually weren't in touch with the other commissioners so we were often like five little uh, spaceships uh doing our work and then the spaceships would get together for these public meetings, but the public meetings, it was just really not possible to have the kind of discussion you would want to have when you want to talk in detail. And that's what the working groups were for. So in other words, you know, there were are, there are really interesting and uh, for law nerds, really complicated problems about, you know, the, the constitutional questions of whether you can by statute uh, basically create the effective equivalent of term limits. 
as an example. There are a lot of really difficult technical questions. You would love to be able to talk to the other commissioners about them. We really couldn't because the Federal Advisory Committee Act basically prevented us from having these kinds of conversations. All the conversations of the commission as a whole had to be in public, and then it was an extremely stilted system uh, of, of, you know, of, of the public hearing. So all the work had to be done, the nitty gritty had to be done within the working groups. And, and there it really was a very, very serious conversation. I should also point out that not only did people fight over the content of the topics they would discuss and how you would solve them, they even yeah. fought over the... There was even a dispute as to how to characterize the court packing plan uh, it, during Roosevelt's uh, administration. And, and people had very strong views about what actually happened and how to characterize what happened and what the consequences were of that. And you won't be surprised that their views about the history mirrored their views about today. That is to say, depending on your view of, of whether you think court packing is a good idea today, your view of what happened in 1937 is very different uh, as well. And that's, of course, related to the book I'm doing on, on how lawyers use history and constitutional argument. And no, this is, I mean, but this is such a great point because I feel like this is something that I am even still fully coming to grips with um now that i even teach law is that i've tried to like make clear to all of my students that a case is to a certain extent whatever it is you tell the judge that case stands for it all well, like your interpretation of the facts is there but you can pull out certain things as long as i mean without being um without being um dishonest and with the bounds of ethics but like that but but yeah, these I, folks by the way they weren't basically trying to 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 nudge the facts, they were basically asserting their view as to what actually happened. There was a um, uh, one of the things that was submitted. Like, give me a for instance. Like, was I mean, like, I actually just had this really lengthy fight, not fight, argument, just like with Genevieve Lapierre about what Mar Marsh v. Alabama meant, in which, like, she she like, for example, like, I just thought this was like cookie cutter. This is kind of more or less like how the like the state action doctrine approaches the Marsh question. I didn't think there was that much. And she just has like, it's not that my view is wrong. It's just that she has like this incredibly different flavor of like what it means in like vis-a-vis -vis the entire rest of the Supreme Court's decisions yeah. before and after. Well, here are some examples of historical questions. And then I'd really like to hear the questions about, you know, the actual substance of court reform today. Yeah, yeah, of course. Examples of questions people would disagree about. So one question would be, was the court packing plan a failure? Uh, was Roosevelt, did it, uh, did, was the Senate report which criticized it an important document or not an important document? Uh, it actually turned out that Senate report backfired. It had exactly the precisely the opposite effect. Um, did, uh, did, did, it, uh, did the court packing plan essentially destroy Roosevelt's domestic agenda for the rest of his presidency? Uh, is the meaning of the court packing plan that there is now a norm that you don't try court packing anymore? These are all historical questions, but they're also questions about meaning. What do things mean? What's the larger significance of these events? So there are disputes about facts, and there are also disputes about what they mean. Let me give you a simple example. It actually turns out at almost any point in the spring in June, uh, in, uh, June of 37, Roosevelt could have said, I want two justices. I'd like you to get Justice Sutherland to retire, and then that's it, I'm going home. And he could have gotten that. He actually could have gotten two justices and probably a third retirement. He also had a retirement in the bag because Van Devanter had retired, announced his retirement in May. So he yeah. could have more appointments, but he wanted more. 
he actually wanted a much larger court packing plan. And he and ultimately his holding out for even more is what sunk it. What hmm. uh, and and he and also another problem was the, the Senate Majority Leader was a conservative Democrat from Arkansas named Joe Robinson. It turned out at the worst possible time he had a heart attack and died. And he was the primary champion of the plan in the Senate when he died. Been about two weeks later, basically everything unravels. Uh, That's so pretty inconvenient. All, it's all contingent, and so therefore the meaning of it is heavily contested. Um, now, I actually happen to be opposed to uh, uh, to court enlargement for reasons I'll talk about later. But my view is that the history doesn't show that the court packing fan was was a complete failure. It, it shows that Roosevelt just overplayed his hand. It's also true that after the court packing plan, Roosevelt's uh, domestic agenda falls apart, but it's overdetermined because, first of all, he tried to purge Southern Democrats from his own party. That didn't go over well. Uh, and then there was this little thing happening in Europe called World War II, which was basically brewing, and that also diverted attention. And there was he also misplayed his hand on economic policy. There was a mini, there was a recession in '38. So all these things together basically, uh, you know, undermined his domestic agenda. So it's difficult to say it was just the court packing plan. But these are the kinds of debates historians have uh, and, and continue to have. Whereas for them, history is complex and multifaceted. And there are a lot of contingencies, but for lawyers, lawyers want a simple answer. Was the court packing plan decisively refuted and was it the cause of the destruction of his administration or not? Yes or no? Please tell me because I'd like very much to take a position on court packing today. That's how lawyers yeah, like, yeah, but this is the whole, this is the entire, I mean, so this is interesting that you're writing this book on this and I'm glad that you prefaced actually that you're writing this book because I feel like it, it really kind of frames a little bit this conversation. So like when you had all of these lawyers kind of discussing this, or these legal scholars uh, versus historians, but discussing this history, like one of the things that I find really frustrating, as you know, or that I, I find, I don't know, that I struggle with legal scholarship is the desire to come out in a normative framework at the end of the day, instead yeah. of treating things in a historical way or a descriptive way. Um, and that I, I, I'm, I'm, it's unclear to me why legal scholars want this so badly, except that like their entire, that the practice of law is outcome-based in, yeah, in, in certain regards. Advocates. They're advocates yes, for normative, right. not only normative positions, but prescriptive position. This is what we should do. This is what we shouldn't do. And so history for lawyers tends to be of two types. That is, uh, the history shows definitely I'm right and we should do this. Or, you know, the history is very complicated and you really don't know what it says. And so you can't draw any important conclusions from it. And lawyers do both of these things and they do them, you know, they just flip back and forth from one to the other as the occasion calls for it. Man, I am in the wrong line of work. Jack. This us historians <laughs> drives them nuts. They just can't believe that lawyers can get away with this stuff. But that's what lawyers Yeah, do. no, it's true. I like I think that that's right. I feel that way a lot of times. Um, but okay, so let's get into the let's get into the decision the, into the report. Um, and so what you said that you worked on the section, I have it open if you said that you worked on the uh, term limit section, um, yeah. which is large, it's six subsections and it's uh roughly 40 pages uh so what was uh what went into that was there specific things that you can talk about that didn't i mean how many meetings did it take to write those 40 pages we like, met pretty we met pretty regularly to talk about it about an hour at a time 
But the, the, the key issue you want to ask yourself is whether term limits are a good idea. It turns out term limits. No, it's not. I'm not. I'm, I don't. I, there's no. Sh I don't need a should. But I, I thought you. The, I thought the entire thing was you weren't supposed to tell us whether it was a good idea or not, Jack. I thought I you were can. specifically directed. I'm not the commission. I'm not the commission. I'm, <laughs> I'm the guy who worked on the commission. I have very strong views about all of these things. You can ask me. I'll tell you. Uh, yeah. Whereas there were. Other I think Orin Orin Kerr. Orin Kerr on uh, on Twitter had a very funny quip about how it like how the the commission all agreed thirty four people all in the same report and then had issued thirty four different op eds in every single publication on the planet over the next two couple of weeks. Um, but like, yeah. So like, what were so specifically when it came to term limits? Um, what were what were some of the things that you you think should be going on or should be happening? Are they did your mind change? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I, I mean, I got a much better sense of the constitutional problems and a much better sense of the implementation issues, which really are the, the major argument against term limits is that it's going to be very difficult to implement. Um, but just but, because of the polit politics right now in the in the Senate and the in the House or like what? Like or like uh, or like actually once you. You have to. So if we started from scratch term limits would very be very easy, but you have existing justices on the court. And the question right. you want to ask is, how are you going to integrate them with the new system where each the president makes two appointments uh, in each term? And so for a while, you're going to have a much larger court. So if you have a term limit system and you grandfather the, and I use that term advisedly, you, the existing <laughs> Then what's going to happen is the court the court will get larger larger for a while and then it'll eventually uh, settle at the appropriate. There's another issue which is how many. So if you have 18 year terms and you make an appointment every two years, it'll eventually settle at, at nine. Um, if you give them 12 year terms, then what's going to happen is a president's going to appoint more. Are going to get to appoint more over the course of their terms? There's actually a formula for this, um, and. And but that gives presidents much more power. So one thing you have to decide is how much power do you want to give presidents to basically shape the court. So imagine that you're elected for two terms. If you have 18 year terms, then a president can basically appoint four justices, which is not actually that unusual historically. A two term president, yeah, a lot of them got to appoint about four. Um, but if you if you increase if you have 12 justice uh, 12 year terms, then in fact it's going to be a lot. It'd be six, I believe. Uh, well, over two well, what years. if he would it have more political viability if you did something, for instance, like promise a certain number of appointments to the next president of an opposing party? Like, is that something that like is is, is even possible? I don't even know. Like, I, I there are a bunch of constitutional issues as to how you can uh, change the president's and the Senate's roles. Um, almost anything can be done by amendment. But uh, I was interested in how it could be done by uh, by statute. Uh, there's a there's a real problem here, a very important problem. You won't be surprised when it's the Senate. Let's suppose <laughs> that the system in which you promise that you're going the president gets two appointments on the, in their first and third years of the presidency, so that works out to a court of nine justices with 18 year terms. That's how the formula works. Now let's suppose that the Senate is run by someone. Let's just call Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell says, 
you know, I, I'm not going to give you an appointment in your first term, and I'm not going to give you an appointment in your third term. I'm just keep stacking them up until I get somebody from my party president, and then I'm going to get four appointments. Uh, you know, I'm going to uh, get the ones you didn't get and the two that, that my guy gets, and then the result is it defeats the whole purpose of the system, which is to make sure that each president, when they're elected, gets an, two opportunities to appoint justices, and that will, over time, make the court much more responsive in the long run to the larger flow of American politics. I mean, one of the things that's very important in understanding how we are now, and here I'm speaking from the perspective of liberal Democrats, Republicans are just happy with this, but liberal Democrats think to themselves, well, you know, Carter got no appointments and uh, Trump got three in four years. Um, Obama should yeah, have but Obama should have had three, but he only got two because Mitch McConnell kept him from getting one. And as a result, Democrats basically don't have the same influence on the court's membership that they probably should have had if it was a, a system that was run fairly. It's what Democrats would say. Republicans would say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's just I, crazy. I, I, actually, I actually kind of think that like, there is so so let's so i have i have a question so i want to know if this was contemplated one of the things i'm super um intrigued by is that there are two um i think i'm pretty sure this happened that there were two second circuit uh judges who have stated that they're waiting to take senior status or they will wait to they were waiting to take senior status to see who was elected president and then they're going to be they want to have some type of like knowledge yeah. of who is going to be considered for their like, and they retirements and they yeah. and when you have life tenure if you have life tenure then you have strategic retirements if you have term limits it's much harder to do strategic retirements because yes and so 18 years and and you're not going to retire early you're going to stick out stick it for 18 years because most justices like being justices so you get rid of the problem of strategic retirements if you move to term limits that's one of the arguments for it but like, are you, do you think, or do you think that history tells, given everything we've said about history, do you think that there, that there is an increase in, in how judges uh, in the lower courts, or I mean, like, let's leave the nine out of it for a second, but like the judges in the lower courts are doing more strategic retirements? My sense is that judges in lower courts have always engaged in strategic retirement. But I am less worried about that in the lower court than I am in the Supreme Court. Let me explain why. This is a point that came up in the public hearings, that a point I made in response to David Levy when he raised uh, the fact. He says, well, if you're going to have term limits for Supreme Court, why not for lower federal courts? And he would be opposed to that. And I said, it really makes a, a big difference. There are approximately 800 and 900 federal judges at any one time. There are only nine Supreme Court justices. So if you have a large enough sample, 800 to 900, then you can be assured that over the course of a presidency of two terms, a significant number of them will retire. They just get older and, they're just, and their ages are distributed and all sorts of things happen to them. It's a large enough sample that you can expect there will be a regular rotation in the lower federal judiciary, even with life tenure. And that's what we see. Yeah. But when you have a sample of only nine, then in fact, you can't be assured that mother nature and mother time will actually do their work and guarantee a continuous rotation of people in and out of office. Instead, and suddenly out of nowhere, one of them kicks the bucket and then you're all of a sudden like, yeah. And so it's very unpredictable. It's very contingent. The advantage of 18 year terms is that everybody knows how the game is played. 
uh, you're going to, uh, and you can appoint people who are a little older. You don't have to appoint uh, very young people because they're not going to be on for more than 18 years. And so if you have a distinguished jurist, uh, you can appoint someone who's older because in fact, they'll serve for 18 years. So there are all these advantages. It also means that as, uh, as American politics changes over time, uh, the judges will, will, justices will stay much more in sync with the basic tenor of uh, the values of American politics over time. Uh, it, and it will be, I just think it'll be a much fairer system than the one we have. In fact, in fact, we have a natural experiment. The natural experiment is the history of the United States until 1970. Until the middle of the 70s, basically what we had was something that was almost equivalent, not exactly the same for complicated reasons, as the idea of 18-year terms. On the average, the justices would stick on around for about 18 years, maybe more, some less. There would be some that lasted much longer, some much shorter. But what we noticed was that the system worked pretty well. And then in the 70s, late 70s, it's really with after Gerald Ford and Carter's presidency, they just stayed on much longer. The terms averaged much longer and presidents got fewer chances to appoint. And so that's largely a real sea change in the way the Supreme Court works. And it really corresponds to the period after the middle of the 1970s. I'm, I'm fascinated to know what the opposition to term limits is, because it does seem, unless unless you think that the deck is stacked in your hand currently and is going to stay there forever, it seems like logistics oh, aside that there should made against term limits, which I don't agree with, is that that by making the term the appointments work like clockwork every first and third term, you make it look like the Supreme Court justices are the mere pawns of the parties or of the presidents. Oh, and, it becomes more political instead of yeah, less. political. And my view is that that's a, that based on a very unrealistic view of how the system has operated to this point in time, and that uh, it, it in fact in some ways it lowers the stakes because you know that. Uh, now, if if a Supreme Court appointment comes up, there's an enormous amount at stake because you never know when another one's going to occur. And therefore, you just pile everything on into either blocking or getting the person on. Whereas if you know that they are coming first and third years of every presidential term, you've got to win the presidency. If you do, you get your justices appointed. You, know, you get appointments. It just changes the game. It just makes it... Uh, a very different world. And it also encourages turn-taking. The current system does not encourage turn-taking. The current system encourages get get your stuff while you can so the other guy never gets his stuff and you devil take the hindmost. It's a, it's a system that's really designed uh, to increase partisan rancor. Um, term limits would not cure partisan rancor, mind you. It wouldn't solve the polarization problem, but it's certainly a much more rational system. I mean, there's also just, I mean, it's not, not just much more rational. It does serve other things that we hope the law solves for, like giving us predictability and stability over time and kind of like knowing, I mean, even though that's not typically contemplated in the makeup of the courts, like, I think that that is like something that is, is like, is important. I mean, people decide when they're going to bring certain types of cases based on the makeup of the court or like, or, or the make or, or what circuit they want to bring it in. Even. You know, generally so, the way people think about it is you have a sense of the judicial philosophies of the justices, even though the justices are not mere pawns of the party system, 
They're, they don't just vote one way, whatever their party tells them. That's just not what they do. And they don't think of themselves that way. Nevertheless, you know, have a good sense of what their judicial philosophies are. You know that Amy Coney Barrett is an originalist and, you know, she's a political conservative. And so, you know, that you have a pretty good idea of how she's going to think about a lot of problems, not all. And as time goes on, she's going to uh, change her mind about some things. But generally, you have a fairly good sense of what's going on. That's not the same thing as saying that these are mere adjuncts of political parties. It's just not the same thing. But it is. it does mean that each president should get the opportunity to find judges who represent the president's judicial philosophy and also the judicial philosophy of, of the coalition supports the president. That's in fact exactly what the Republican Party has realized and succeeded in doing uh, for the, over the course of the last four decades or more. They have sought to put judges and justices in place who reflect the judicial philosophy and constitutional values of the uh, movement conservatives and Republican Party been very successful at it. So I want to talk for a second about kind of, I, well, I want to get into, you were, we're edging up to whole, whole woman's health, I think, and some of like kind of what happened um, both, uh, well, in the decision and then I think oral arguments, which were both interesting. Um, but before I get there, I'm kind of curious just like to, to kind of like wrap up a little bit the discussion on the, on the report. Given, I know, and we know you like term limits, but if you were just really kind of like taking a step back and being a little bit neutral about this and kind of reading the whole report together, if there were going to be recommendations that came out of this, what do you think are, I'm not even going to say, okay, so let's set aside political feasibility, but like what in the kind of the gamble and the measure of whatever it would mean to be politically feasible and and instrumentally possible, like are the best idea? Well, it, it all depends. Are on you going to say term limits? Well, do you want to? So let, let me try and, and put this in perspective. Term sure. limits are quick fixes. That is, you think there's something deeply wrong with the court and you need needs to be fixed immediately. And that's how you're going to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, a court expansion is a quick fix. If something's deeply wrong with the court, you got to fix it. And so you have to have it for new justice, the Supreme Court. And everybody who argues for turn, uh, for court expansion is arguing that way. There's an emergency. Yeah. The court is gone, is out of, is gone haywire. Uh, these are all Democrats, by the way. Republicans don't argue this way. Um, no kidding. And, and, <laughs> and, and we have to do something, our democracy at stake. If we don't do something now, uh, who knows what will happen? We need uh, court expansion now. Term limits folks are not quick fix people. They're people who think, well, there is a the court is out of whack, it's out of balance, uh, not partisan balance, it's just it's just very random. It's just a random situation where if somebody has a heart attack, then the, the direction of the whole country changes. Um, and it just is an excuse for a partisan hardball. So term limits folks say we ought to have good government reforms that basically make the system work better and is more predictable and rational. But it's yeah. not a quick fix because, in fact, a term limit system, if you put it in place, would take some time to have its effects. So term limits people are thinking around the long term. They're thinking about okay. similarly, and then jurisdiction stripping people. Jurisdiction stripping people, their view is I that's don't like a very this. long term. I don't like the Supreme Court making these decisions. Let's stop them from making these decisions. So let's strip their jurisdiction now. So a, a jurisdiction stripping people, they have a bunch of they have a bunch of things they want to do, and they want to do it now. Um, uh, Supermajority requirements people are basically thinking about long-term structures. 
but I don't think they know exactly what the consequences will be, but that's what they're thinking in terms of long-term structures. And similarly, people who want things like uh, legislative override, which is what you have, something like that in Canada, they're also thinking in larger structural terms on the long haul. So among the people who are involved in the report, some are thinking I need something quick and some are thinking I want something for the long term. I'll give you a wonderful example. Larry Tribe, uh, for many years, like me, was supportive of term limits. But by the time he finished working on the commission, he said, I no longer believe in term limits. I no longer think it's a good idea. We need court expansion now, says Larry Tribe. Well, I think I know why that is the case. I think that Larry Tribe thinks that American democracy is in deep danger and he wants a quick fix. And so that's why he supports term limits. I think he also has objections to implementation uh, of term limits, but that's why he wants court expansion. I'm sorry, he supports court expansion, not term limits. And so it just no, depends on what you think. How do you understand what's going on in America? Uh, do you think that we are in dire, dire trouble? I think we are, but I don't think that uh, court expansion is the answer to the dire, dire trouble that we're in right now. I think that what you have to do is you have to fix the Senate filibuster rules uh, and you have to have significant mobilization to basically put people in place who will pass really important reforms uh, to our democratic system. That's what you really need. So, so the the shadow, the shadow uh, report um, for the um, commission is the Jack Balkan shadow docket is is the Senate. Is that it's actually not a report about the, if not the commission, it's not about the Supreme Court at all. It's about the Senate. Uh, that's like the that's Senate, your... I mean, the Senate is a, is a uh, well, I won't use the word disgrace, but it's it's a major obstacle to the preservation of our democracy. Our democracy is in deep trouble, and the Senate stands in the way of fixing our democracy. Um. Yes, I, I I've heard this said a few times. Uh, but what is the, what is the, I kind of, I want to just really quickly before we go to questions, I want to hear if you think any of the things about what you saw or were afraid of uh, when you went into this commission um, and when, the, as this report was coming out, how, how, you, like what, what the, what you thought about the oral arguments and then the result in like, in, in whole women's health. Like, I just, I'm curious what you thought. Well, of, like, okay. So Whole Women's Health is decided in the shadow of Dobbs. Dobbs is the Mississippi case in which five of the justices strongly signaled they wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade and the Casey decision. Mm -hmm. So you can't understand what's going on in, um, uh, in Whole Women's Health v. Jackson, except against the background of the fact that it's very likely that five justices don't think there will be a right to abortion uh, come June. And therefore, they don't regard what Texas has done with any degree of urgency. They don't see it as a serious blow to uh, the protection of constitutional rights in the United States, because in their view, this thing is going out the window anyway in a several months. So why should we make a big deal out of this? So uh, it turns out that the justices who are in dissent in Jackson, that's the chief justice and the three liberals, are the justices most likely to not want to directly overrule Roe versus Wade? I think the chief doesn't like it, but I think he wants to proceed in slow steps. And the three liberals don't want to overrule Roe and Casey at all. And they're the ones most upset about the, uh, uh, the Texas statute. 
and that's basically my take on it is that that it's a it's shadow boxing over Dobbs. Dobbs is the central question. Um, and uh, now in Texas, it is the case that uh, one of the other things about it is that the, the people that are most affected by it are the people who provide abortions because although they can sue some executive officials, they can't be assured that no individual plaintiff, no private citizen won't sue them for a minimum of $10,000 in civil damages. Yeah. And so they basically shut down because they can't risk it. And again, Dobbs is very important because even if you thought that you would be vindicated in a lower federal court, they would say, clearly this civil lawsuit can't proceed because of Roe and Casey. In June, by the time the case is decided, Roe and Casey may not be there anymore. So why would you risk it? If there's no Roe and Casey in June and you're an abortion provider, it is folly to basically let somebody sue you because there will be no right in June. That's why all of this is done in the background, in the backdrop of, of Dobbs. So what do you make of the of Gavin Newsom's uh, like PR stunt? Or, well, I mean, well, do no, you think it's a PR I, stunt yeah. or do you think it's a real threat? Well, who knows? But again, it's really, this is a point Mike Dorf made, so I want to give him full credit. Mm-hmm. Again, Dobbs is crucial to understanding the yeah. difference between a statute directed at guns and one directed at abortion. In a statute directed at abortion, if you uh, are sued in a civil lawsuit, you're an abortion provider and you're sued, you have to take the very significant risk that when they finally get to the merits, there's not going to be a right there anymore. But on the other hand, if you are a gun manufacturer or somebody who sells guns and you uh, uh, get caught in a civil lawsuit, you know that there are five and possibly six justices who think that the right to bear arms is extremely important and will in fact protect your rights. And there are any number of lower federal court judges appointed by Republican presidents and Donald Trump who think that this is a very important right and they will move heaven and earth to protect your rights. Is is this jawboning? Is this California jawboning the Supreme Court? Um, No, I mean, I think the really interesting question is, uh, you know, Newsom may Maybe we need to come up with a new word for it, but you do understand what I'm saying, right? Like they're basically saying like, listen, if you do this, then we're coming at you with this and you're going to have to be inconsistent in some fundamental way with like. Yeah, but I really don't think these just the justice and the majority in Jackson really care about whether they're called inconsistent or not. Fair I think enough. that they, they they know where they want to go and they're going to go there. That is at least my current understanding of what's going on. They, they, they could surprise you. I should just tell you that when I was working on a book on Roe versus Wade, which is now sadly out of date, it was called What Roe versus Wade Should Have Said. Um, and it was published in 2005, I think, and it had all these opinions rewriting Rome. Uh, it would be an interesting question as to whether this will be a historical artifact uh, next year. I did a lot of research on the history of the decisions in Roe and Casey, and I went to the Library of Congress and I read Justice Blackmun's papers, which had just been opened to the public. And I discovered that, you know, Roe was going to be reversed several times during Blackmun's uh, term on as a justice, but it didn't. As I say, it was going to be reversed in 89. It didn't. It was going to be reversed in 92. It didn't. And, you know, things happen. And it's possible that things will happen in this case. But I seriously doubt it because I think it's a different group of justices that were uh, on the bench in 89 and 92 than and today. And so I think that the justices today are more predictable 
uh, I think, than the justices in 89 and 92. Jack, Scott Shapiro, you know- I yes. am so delighted <laughs> to see you. I, thank you for, for letting me come on the show. Um, <laughs> like a, a Jack was very excited. He was like, I've never seen Scott co-host the show. I'm like, okay. I, 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 I really like Scott and he's also my colleague. And because of COVID, we don't get to see each other very much anymore. And so it's just lovely to you know be able to talk to him. Right. Great. I, um, it, um, so did we, did we, um, resolve the question about whether the commission made the right or wrong recommendation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, we resolved uh, that. Okay. Yeah, okay. we resolved as Oren Kerr, I gave credit to Oren that his like 34 to oh the Supreme they put out the commission puts out this report, 34 different op-eds and 34 <laughs> different publications. And then he like he went back on that though, Jack. He was like well, maybe it wasn't 34 different op-eds because actually they co-authored some of them. So, like, <laughs> so like, I decided instead of writing an op-ed, I would appear on in lieu of fun and, and that way I could have a conversation with, with you guys. Uh, so uh, one less op-ed. Uh, we have a quick question from David. And so I'm going to have David come on really quickly and ask his question. Um, if we can get his, uh, if he can get him to pop up, he is, I think we can hear you, David, but you're not, your camera's not turning on. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, I'll ask my question. Um, so everybody always talks about how hard it is or impossible to get an amendment passed to deal with term limits and or, or any of the limits that you talk to, any of the terms that you talked about. So I wonder if, if, if Congress can do this by extortion, essentially. Congress can, pass, Congress can pass a law in, let's say they could have passed this uh, early this year, saying we're going to add two justices to the court every year for the next three years. And at the same time, we're going to try to pass this amendment that has term nine-year, uh, 18-year term limits and so forth. But, uh, and, and so justices will start to be added by Biden. And that will incentivize the red states and the red senators, red state senators, to vote for the amendment. So by extortion, you can you can you can generate you can you can force states to want to pass that amendment. So can you do that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the way you would do the extortion. I like <laughs> the way David H. thinks. I like it. Uh, but here's another way of doing it. So. I am of the view, and so is my colleague Akhil Amar and Scott's colleague Akhil Amar, that you can actually do term limits by statute. That is perfectly constitutional. So one way you could do this uh, is, uh, and make sure that the court basically accepts term limits so they don't strike down the statute, is you could say the following. You pass a law with two parts. Part A is a term limit statute. Part B is a court expansion statute. And the court, and part B comes into effect if part A is held unconstitutional by the court. Uh, so it's a severability. Scott's point. nodding like he has any uh, idea what you're talking uh, that, about. <laughs> no, uh, no, that is really devilish. Um, that's really clever. Is that, I mean, like something a lawyer would do? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> no, it, it's a, whose idea was that? Was that your idea? Very yeah, nice. That's, that's, I'm not the only idea. person who's thought of it, but yes, that is one of them. But my it's ideas. a good idea. I And I, I want to, Genevieve has so many but, beautiful questions that she posed. 
But she wants to, ask, I'm going to ask this because it got upvoted so many times. Like you mentioned this before. What do you think, you said like people don't like term limits because of political polarization. But her question is kind of, or she, you said that basically like you think that people say that term limits will make the court kind of more politically gamed. That is right? to say, this will make it look like the justices are belong to the presidents who appoint them. Uh, that was the argument against it. I find this argument mysterious, but that is.